This episode of Live from CapTime's Idea Fest is sponsored by Exact Sciences. Learn more about Exact Sciences' mission to beat cancer through early detection at exactsciences.com. Hello, and welcome to Live from Cap Times Idea Fest. I'm Eric Lawrenson. Over the course of the coming weeks, we're going to be bringing you recordings from the second annual Cap Times Idea Fest, a two day event on the University of Wisconsin Madison campus full of smart conversations about politics, community, and culture. On today's episode, a one on one conversation with Michael Johnson. Before he left to take on a leadership role with the United Way of Greater Cincinnati, Michael Johnson was a prominent figure in Madison's community. Someone applauded for his work as the president and CEO of the Boys and Girls Club of Dane County, and for his outspoken advocacy for racial equity in the city. Johnson returned to Madison for a one-on-one interview with Cap Time City Editor Katie Dean for the Idea Fest. In their wide-ranging talk, Johnson reflected on the challenges he faces today in his new home turf, his work in Madison to create a more equitable landscape, and the frustrations he has when it comes to Madison's record with pursuing social justice. I'll let Katie take things from here. I hope you enjoy the talk. People are familiar with your work in Madison um, and your, the job that you did here transforming the Boys and Girls Club. But can you talk a little bit about how in your life growing up, I know the, the Boys and Girls Club played a formidable role for you. So um, maybe you want to talk a bit about what that was all about. Well, let me say, Katie, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. And, uh, and thanks to each and every last one of you all for uh, participating and being a part of this. Uh, I am somebody who uh, benefited from uh, organizations like Boys and Girls Clubs and uh, United Way and so many other uh, wonderful nonprofits um, in, um, in, in our region. I grew up in Chicago. Uh, I grew up in uh, one of the toughest public housing developments in the country. Uh, I grew up in two public housing developments, one called Cabrini Green and the other one called the uh, Abela Homes. And Katie, it really did hit me the impact that organizations like Boys and Girls Clubs had on my life um, and groups like United Way that helped to fund uh, Boys and Girls Clubs until um, I was working at Chicago Public Schools and our school superintendent asked if I would come back and give a commencement speech. Um, um, back when I was 23 years old. At that time, I was somebody who, uh, I didn't have a lot of confidence. I stuttered all the time, and I was not a great speaker. So I took about two months writing this commencement speech, and I literally wrote a 47-page speech to give to a bunch of eighth graders. (laughs) And I remember walking in that building. I was so fired up to talk to these kids. But I remember walking in, they had all of our eighth grade graduation photos um, in this school building that dated back to 1961. Uh, I graduated in 1983, 84. And um, there was 23 young men that had graduated with me, and I started counting. 
one after another. Out of 23, as of today, four of us are still alive. So the four of us got together, and we said, why were we given grace? And there was four things that we all had in common. Um, we were all members of the Boys and Girls Clubs, uh, programs that was funded by the organization that I work for now at United Way. Two, we were um, uh, all had mentors, people like you, uh, who worked for a living, who became our mentors and exposed us to opportunities, uh, people who were connected to mentoring programs like, um, uh, like Big Brothers and Big Sisters. Three, we were all connected to a community of faith. Um, we, we had uh, an institution around us that had wraparound services that provided resources to our family, not to give us a handout, but to give us a, a helping hand. My mother suffered from schizophrenia, and if it was not for our church and those wraparound services, uh, I think we would have really struggled uh, as, a as a family that lived in poverty. And then fin finally, we, just, we were just very, very fortunate that we uh, had uh, mothers who were forced to be reckoned with. Um, so I decided at that time, after giving that speech, I did not talk to those kids. I did not even speak about the stuff that I had in that 47-page document. I ended up talking to these young people about survival. And then I wanted to figure out, I was still living in the projects when I was working at Chicago Public Schools. And I said, I want to utilize the rest of my life to change the lives of other people. So I worked during the day. I went to school at night. Uh, I found out that I couldn't read and write a college proficiency. I ended up going to Malcolm X Junior College on the west side of Chicago. Took me four and a half years to get an associate's degree. Uh, because I couldn't read and write at college proficiency. It was the best thing that ever happened to me going to that junior college. Ended up going to Chicago State to get my bachelor's degree. I ended up getting an MBA. I ended up going to Cornell University. I ended up going to Indiana University. I ended up going to the University of Michigan, Raw School of Business, and ended up getting all these degrees and decided that they all were going to be in business fundraising, and human resource management. So I would learn how to run a nonprofit and do it really, really well to impact people's lives, to ensure that I could raise resources for them, to ensure that I could manage the people and the human capital around it. And so I've spent the last 20 years, most of my time here in Madison, Wisconsin. I lived here longer than anywhere uh, else in this world. I worked in Philadelphia. I worked in uh, St. Louis. I spent almost nine years here in this city. And then three months ago, I became the uh, president and CEO of the uh, sixth largest United Way in the United States. Thank you. Um, so one thing that I think you were really known for in Madison, and um, it, it you have sort of a, a gift for reaching people directly in the community, individuals and families, and then also your extensive schooling, sounds like, to, to learn how to be a fantastic fundraiser and work with businesses to get them involved in the community. Can you talk about that balance, how, you, how you're able to, to do that? I mean, because I think you know, that's, a, that's a unique skill that I think is hard for, for other leaders to, to emulate. What, what about it? How, how, do you, how do you make that work? 
it was a challenge here. Uh, I am so thankful. Um, you know, Mad I learned so much in this city. And Madison was great in so many ways. But Madison also beat the hell out of me. <laughs> and uh, But I gained a, a, tough, a lot of tough skin uh, doing that process. And where I'm trying to balance that here, uh, by the time I left, we were pretty much just only in, uh, when I started, we were only in Madison. And then we expanded to uh, well, Fitchburg and now some Prairie. And then we ended up doing some mergers and acquisitions. And, and we ended up going to other counties. Uh, now that I'm uh, part of an organization that is a um, 70 plus million dollar budget, $100 million uh, in assets over three counties. Here I had 30 board members. There I have 65. Here I had about 75 committee members there. I have over 500. And so being able to, here I had uh, 25,000 donors. There I have 90,000 donors. And so that's a lot of egos, a lot of people, a lot of territory, to try to um, cover. Here I spoke up on a lot of uh, social justice issues in a very liberal market. I now live in a very conservative market with a lot of Democrats, a lot of Republicans, and everything in between. And uh, I learned just yesterday, I was asked to be a part of a gubernatorial debate, and I was on a panel, and I asked a very, very tough question, and you could see like the room just pause. And, uh, and here I think that question would have been uh, like a no-brainer, but it made people, I would say, uncomfortable. And I got to get used to, uh, I got to get used to that. So what was the question? Well, it was, about, <laughs> so, so my first question was to the, the Democratic uh, candidate running for governor. And it was, to me, I thought it was a very simple question. It was, uh, the question was about early childhood education. And, and I wanted some specific uh, a specific response to how uh, they were going to address uh, the gaps, like African American, Latino, and poor white kids. We in the state, we have some of the lowest standards. Uh, I think we're the last in the state. We either forty nine or fifty. How they were going to address it specifically for African American and poor white kids that live in rural communities. Sound like a very Simple question to me. And uh, I felt like, uh, so we were told we could not ask follow-up questions. And I felt like uh, the answer was danced around a little bit. So uh, I told the moderator, I said, I want to follow up on my question. I want specifics. And people were like, ooh. <laughs> and so, uh, uh, so, so I would say here, when you spoke up on issues, there was people who supported Boys and Girls Clubs. And sometimes we lost support because we uh, we spoke up on those issues. And what I remind my board was that I thought we was always on the right side of justice because even though we lost some support, our donor uh, our donor database grew from eighteen hundred donors to twenty five thousand, and we became one of the fastest growing boys and girls clubs in the country because we did not sit on the sideline. We spoke up when it counted, even when it made people angry. And sometimes leadership is about sitting in a seat of discomfort. And I would tell you, my entire 
nine years here, I was always uncomfortable. And I think I grew as a person because of it. That's So what, what, can you talk about some of the strategies that you learned here? You know, you said being uncomfortable was, was something that uh, was part of it. How are you applying this, some of the strategies and things that you learned here in your new position? So I would say again, I'm just so thankful uh, for, for the, the number of people I met here from, uh, from grassroots community leaders to elected officials to high net worth um, individuals. It's all about relationships. Uh, I don't care what, what kind of programs you run. If you don't have relationships with people and p if people don't believe in um, who you are and what you represent, you won't get support. Uh, so I would say what I learned from here was I learned that in this work, you can never go at it alone. Uh, we built up an amazing board, so I learned here in Madison how to engage board members, how to hold them accountable, how to bring them along the journey. I would say I was probably a, um, I would say, I wouldn't say a novice around strategic planning, but I was probably an entry-level executive when it came into developing strong strategic plans. I mastered it here because of the level of board members and volunteers that we had on our board. And so the strategic planning uh, piece I learned um, here was very, very critical, and it's critical in the role that I play now. I would say, too, one of the things I learned in this community, I always tried to maintain relationships with all groups of people, whether it was Latina, African-American, uh, people who are wealthy, poor people, uh, black, white, gangbangers to corporate CEOs. I tried to have a connection where I could walk in any one of those rooms and demand respect because I had relationships with them. And that's a role that I'm going to have to play uh, in my position as United Way, who is somebody who is seen as a convener. And that's something... I would say that I learned uh, here fairly well. So how do you take that experience and, you know, feeling like that's a foundation of success in where you were in Madison when the scope of your job now is so much larger? How can you continue to keep up those types of relationships? I, I, the one piece I missed, I would say you got to build a good team around yourself. You know, in Madison, the boys go had a great board. Uh, a great leadership team, people who I recruited here in this region, but I also hired people from all over the country. I went out and found people, even when people weren't looking. If I saw somebody that was talented and I heard them speak, or I heard that I would literally stalk them and, and recruit them to come to Madison. I'm going to do the same thing in Cincinnati. If there's somebody out there doing good in this world, and I find out who they are, I'm going to do everything I can to try to bring them to our, our region. And so I would say that's something I learned from um, some people that I was connected to on this board. So surrounding yourself around great volunteers, surrounding yourself around uh, a great management team. And I'm fortunate that uh, uh, we have a bunch of people on our team who have GEDs all the way up to PhDs. And uh, I'm fortunate that I have uh, seven very talented senior vice presidents 
uh, and vice presidents that work out in our field, uh, field offices. So being able to leverage uh, their leadership and then uh, our volunteers. We got a little mini army of 500 people that's helping to support uh, our work. And then finally, I would say, I gave a speech last night, uh, I mean, night before last, after I came back from Canada, and um, there was a, uh, a dinner with about 500 people. I said, if you are a United Way uh, supporter, please stand up. If you are a United Way uh, volunteer, please stand up. And literally everybody in that room stood up. And it was really, really refreshing to see and to see that a, a small community like Cincinnati uh, that raises $60 million over the last, a year, over the last decade, that has raised more money than New York City, raised more money than the United Way of Chicago, and some of these large urban markets, uh, they're punching way above um, their, their weight. And I'm glad to be a part of it. Can you talk a bit about the um, sort of the, the chief issues that you faced here in Madison that you work to address in your role at the Boys and Girls Club, and how how do those issues compare to where you are now in Cincinnati? Yeah, I would tell you, I think, I remember when I first got here, people laughed at us. Uh, I remember we put out our strategic plan, and uh, I had shared with the community that we wanted to raise $20 million a year, and I remember being, it being on the front page of the Wisconsin State Journal. And I think uh, Matt DeFore wrote the story. And I remember Matt questioning we said, we're going to help close this achievement gap. And we believe through this Avid Tops program that over the next seven to ten years, we can get over a 1,000 kids, uh, African-American, Latino, and other kids of color who traditionally don't graduate from high school to graduate. And all we need is about $20 million to do it over the last seven, seven years. Uh, don't, touch, don't, don't take my word for it. Google and you'll see over a 1,000 kids, African-American, Latino, and other kids of color, uh, first-generation college student, uh, year after year after year, 95% of our kids graduated from high school and went on to college. And so uh, I was proud of that work. Uh, thank you. I was proud of that work. So making sure our kids were uh, graduating from high school is a critical issue that I felt and our team at Boys and Girls Club felt would help uplift and move kids out of poverty. Two, um, I was, we were concerned about the, uh, oral health care. Tooth decay is one of the primary reasons why kids miss school. So we wanted to do something about it. So we built a dental clinic to make sure that kids had access to uh, to uh, oral health care. And tooth decay is one of the primary reasons why kids miss school all across the region. And then three, disparities in uh, the racial disparities in this city. The young lady who just spoke in, the, uh, in this session before us talked about how in some communities, 20-25% of African Americans are unemployed in this region. It is unacceptable. And this community needs to address it. And we study issues too long here. We talk about them too long here. In Cincinnati, um, something I think you all, we should, or oh, I can't say we now, uh, that you should consider is that we just passed a Through United Way. We have a public policy team in my office, and we passed a, 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 
uh, a levy, and we have a subsidiary nonprofit called the Cincinnati Preschool Promise that passed a levy for $15 million to make sure that every child in Cincinnati has uh, accessibility to early childhood education. And so we have kids in this city who can't read, can't write, and uh, in some communities, it is high as 55, 60%. And if we can't invest in our kids, who will we invest in? So making sure our kids are educated, I think is a major issue here. And this city is so smart, so bright, so small, yet so wealthy that it just doesn't feel like there's a systemic priority to address it. And we have the same issues in Cincinnati. And so I think that's one of the reasons why they hired me. Uh, we have the sixth largest child poverty rate you know, in the United States. One in three kids in our region you know, live in poverty. Some of the same issues you see here in Madison. The difference in my role at Boys and Girls Club, I had some influence here. And Cincinnati, I now have the power of the business community. I, I get to decide where $60 million pretty much go every year. And I now have resources and some influence and some power. I don't know if I had real power here. I had influence, but I didn't have a lot of power. So I guess a follow-up question to that would be, what does Madison need to do? Why, why do you think... I mean, you're, you're referencing sort of a more <clears throat> conservative city, yeah, yeah, like Cincinnati yeah. just pa passing this levy, yeah. devoting this money to early childhood education yeah. in a city like Madison that's liberal yeah. and cares about these issues, yeah. it seems. Uh, what is the problem? Why, yeah. can't we, why can't we better address Katie, these problems? Too many people working in silos. Uh, that's, that's part of the problem. Uh, two, I think that uh, when, just like in any good business plan, in our city there's no systemic vision or plan around how we address this, these issues. And I'm not being critical of the mayor's office or the county executive, but it has to start uh, from those offices and uh, the citizens of the city demanding a real plan around these issues. And then I also think it, uh, if the city wants these issues addressed, uh, you can't band-aid this funding to address these issues, right? You can't tackle systemic issues with $10,000 grants here and there. And so uh, I think we need to analyze, uh, do a cost analysis on what it would cost to close the racial achievement gap to close the unemployment gaps in this community and begin to fund it, whether it's through a sugar tax or some sort of levy. Uh, the business community can't do it by themselves. The government community cannot do it by themselves. It's going to take real resources with a real plan and aligning those nonprofits and these groups that do the work uh, I love this model that Great Lakes have, Great Lakes Higher Education. When they funded Broke Boys and Girls Club, if we didn't get results, they didn't fund us again. If we didn't spend the money on the things that they, they would do an audit, and if you spent one penny 
outside of what you said you were going to spend in that grant, you had to return the money back to them. And sometimes there are some very generous donors in this community that write the check, but don't follow up and ask what impact was made um, and what was the return on their investment. A lot of times the investment is being made, but the return on that investment sometimes, I mean, many times, is not there. The biggest problem, it seems, that continues in Madison is is racial inequality and race, race issues of racial equity. During your time here, did you see that change at all? I mean, you had certain programs like Avid Tops. You were able to uh, grow the Boys and Girls Club specifically. Do you Do you feel like any progress was made? What sorts of progress was made, if at all? So I, I would say it was a lot, a lot of talk. Um, a lot of good people, I think, doing a lot of good things. But systemically, if you look at the data, things are not getting better. So while we did a lot of great things at Boys and Girls Clubs, we helped a lot of kids. Systemically, we're still operating in silos. And, and until groups... Like United Way, the Boys and Girls Club, the Urban League, the Nehemiahs of the world, the city, the county, all come together and say, here's our big, hairy, audacious goal. Here's our, uh, the rocks that's going to help us achieve our big, hairy, audacious goal. And then the funders coming together to say, here's how we're going to fund these priorities around this work. We're going to be talking about these issues 50 years from now. And I'm afraid this, that, that if we don't take it seriously and if we don't align resources and around, around a plan and hold folks accountable, um, a lot of people are going to be hurt um, in the process. So I would say I probably give this city a C- minus uh, as it relates to uh, how we address these issues in the community. And I could back that up by just simply looking at the data. Some people will probably be harder than me and give us a D. Madison's one of the best places in the city to live, right? You is if, yeah, there you go. If you're if you're white, you look at, you know, African Americans and Latina, you look at the unemployment rate, you look at uh how our kids perform, it is unacceptable. And we shouldn't accept that as the norm in this city that's so smart and so rich. And I, we just have to do better. So the Justified Anger um, movement and the Justified Anger plan that was brought together was, I think, designed to do some of what you're talking about, yeah, yeah. bring these entities together to work specifically on incarceration or education or various issues. So why do you think that that, I mean, how, how would you look at the, that plan and its success or? I, I think, uh, Katie, I spent a lot of time with Pastor G. Pastor G uh, came over my house many nights. Uh, and we were there at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, you know, working on that plan. And I think there's a lot of great um, pieces in that plan. Um, I chose not to stand there. The day that he announced it, I was actually, it was an uh, officer-involved shooting in Baltimore. And I actually was in Madison the day that that announcement was made. And I told people that uh, I was not in town. And I chose not to stand with everybody there. Because what typically happens, we every 10 years, 
your newspaper and others, and, and more so Cap Times have been on the front end of really reporting on uh, social justice issues in this community. And these articles come out, and people uh, talk about the issues. They use there's a town hall meeting, and then typically there's a plan, and then it stops there. So I was pushing the group to say, okay, uh, I think, I think uh, your foundation stepped up, made a big donation, but I said, if you don't come up with systemic funding from this, uh, this thing is going to be reduced down to a program, to a certain neighborhood. I went on the record and said that publicly. And when I look at what that plan represented for this region, it was reduced to a program. And that's part of the problem. Pastor G was left with all of that responsibility. And this city did not systemically fund the mandates that folks gave during that. And I think thousands of people gave feedback towards that plan. And we went through a process that pretty much concluded to a program and not a strategy around changing systemic systems in this region. I know it's tough to hear, um, hear that, um, but I knew working in Chicago and working in Philadelphia, I've seen it happen before. And I watched Pastor G go out there and try to raise money, $10,000, $15,000 here and there, and we got, we, got, we got to do better. So um, since we're talking about tough things, difficult things, I, I wondered if you could talk about kind of your toughest time when you were in Madison. Wow. Uh, I would say a couple of times. Uh, I would say both of them was involved around officer-involved shootings. Uh, the first one I would start was, was when uh, Michael Brown was killed in um, Ferguson, Missouri. I got a call from uh, Mayor um, Slay. I think that was his name, Mayor Slay, and the head of the Urban League there. And they asked if we would raise money to help bury the, um, Michael Brown. And I called the head of the Urban League back, and I said, no, this is getting a lot of news. You all will be able to bury that young man. But if we, um, if we can help out in other ways, I'll be willing to help. So they came back and said, well, can you help raise scholarship money for his siblings? I'm like, huh, that's a great idea. I said, let me see how Madison responds. So I went on Facebook, and I think within 12 hours, we raised $30,000. And I just could not believe how this community responded. And I felt really good about it. And I remember, and I don't know if I should have shared this publicly, but yeah, I actually, I think I called Paul Fanlin. And, uh, and Al Sharpton, I was in the car, and I got a phone call, and my secretary said, Al Sharpton is online, wants to talk to you. And I'm like, yeah, right. <laughs> I said, that's probably clean care somebody playing. <laughs> so... Uh, so she, she put the call through, and I was in the car with this uh, young film producer here named Raphael Raglan, and it was Reverend Sharpton. And he said, hey, um, I heard that Madison raised all his money for Mike Brown. Would you mind uh, presenting it to the family at a press conference that we're having? So I was like, sure. So then uh, he hangs up. Somebody else comes on the phone. and I, So I thought it would be something simple. So I get there. 
and they go through the program with me, and it was Martin Luther King III, Reverend Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton, uh, Judge Mathis, and then Michael Johnson. So I begged Reverend Charlotte, can I please go first? <laughs> I do not want to come after all these speakers. So they wouldn't change the program. And then by then I started seeing tweets from like Channel 3000, all these folks running it live, live stream here in Madison. And I'm watching like, oh my God, this is serious. So uh, we get there, we present them with the check. And then I had learned from a colleague here and not only did we raise $25,000 at a local professor here and the university, without using any public dollars, um, secured scholarships for all of Michael Brown's siblings. And so I announced that to uh, the world. And I got in the car, and all hell broke loose. Um, I had 27,000 emails, like within two hours. People calling for my resignation. Now, while I was there... I had also met with the police department, uh, had met with the new police captain, met with the mayor's office. But because I was on the stage with Al Sharpton, uh, some people wrote me off as anti-police. And there were some people not, and it wasn't from Madison, it was a lot of people from Milwaukee and from Texas and big donors of Boys and Girls Clubs of America. I did not like that Boys and Girls Clubs was front and center on that. So I literally hired a company to help me go through all those emails. And 90% of them was positive. It was the 10% that was just brutal. And I was afraid that some boys and girls clubs could potentially lose their funding. So then somebody started questioning, where did the scholarship money come from? Did we take scholarship money from Wisconsin Knights and sent it over to um, to uh, Missouri. So I had to remind, and people thought the money came from Boys and Girls Club. So I ended up doing a, I think a press conference when I got back and said not one penny came from Boys and Girls Club. All of it was raised through a GoFundMe site and through private donors who wanted to put his siblings through, uh, through, um, through college. And then a similar situation happened with the Tony Robinson um, shooting. That probably was the worst. Um, when I got back from Ferguson, I had learned that anytime there's an officer-involved shooting, um, you want to have a community gathering. And I remember calling Pastor G, asking him um, if we could utilize his church and bring people out to the community to uh, just vent. I think almost 300 people spoke that night. And I was trying to be a bridge builder. And what I learned is that when you're a bridge builder, Bridges get stumped on, and I was getting stumped on from uh, people who looked like me. I got stumped on from uh, people who were connected to law enforcement and business people, and all I was simply trying to do was to make sure that our city did not burn down like Ferguson and Baltimore, and that was tough. And then being able to explain to donors why you know we were doing that, uh, I would say it was one of my toughest uh, times here. So what were the criticisms coming from each side? Uh, why, boy, why, why is Boys and Girls Club doing this? Why not the NAACP? Why not the, uh, why not the Urban League? And I think at the time there was a leadership gap. And I was just generally concerned about our city. 
And I didn't insert myself in it when the night that Tony Robinson was killed. I was actually, I just finished uh, helping to raise money for Kaleem at One City Schools at night. I think we had raised like $40,000. I just asked that crowd to raise money. I went home. I got a phone call from Malin Mitchell, who at the time was the uh, president of the local firefighters here. And he said, hey, Mike, uh, can you um, show up at this crime scene? There was a young man that was killed. And I said, well, what does that have to do with me? And he said, white officer, African-American kid. So I knew what that meant. So I show up uh, that night and, uh, and started talking to Colville, the mayor, Tony Robinson's family. At the same time, I got a Facebook message from Tony Robinson's family asking if Boys and Girls Club could help. And so at that point, I was in it. And some people didn't understand why Boys and Girls Clubs was involved in that when people saw us as an after-school provider. And what people didn't realize, we had changed our mission statement to say that if we're going to transform kids' lives in this community, we can no longer do it through after-school programs alone. That means we have to touch kids before school, after school, on weekends. That means we have to advocate and make people uncomfortable. And that also means that uh, geography... Uh, that leadership can't be defined by geographic, geographical area. So people was even questioning, why are y'all going to Flint, Michigan to take water? Why are you going to uh, uh, Houston, Texas and doing all this stuff? Is that taking away money from Boys and Girls Club? And I will always remind my board and our volunteers that we're, we're raising more money than most Boys and Girls Clubs in this country. Our budget was growing almost a million dollars a year because we were relevant, we were doing good, we were helping people, we were changing people's lives. And when you do things like that, sometimes people get jealous. Uh, sometimes people will attack you fairly or unfairly. When you speak up on issues, I've had my fair share of fights with Paul Soglin, with Jason Gonzalez, with local older people, and it was always about, from my view, kids and fighting for resources. And when you do that, uh, people will attack you and try to attack you through your board, attack you through your donors, or smear your name. And I prayed a lot. I would pray. <laughs> I would uh, seek advice. And I was thankful that I had some donors in this community who were very, very powerful that had became my friends, that when other people tried to wipe me off the, the map, they were fighting, um, fighting behind the scenes when I didn't even know it. Actually, we have a, a question from the audience that I think uh, works well with, with what you just said as a good follow-up. You said Madison beat the hell out of you, quote, and leadership here was uncomfortable. I think you pushed us in the best way, and so you got pushback. Do you expect your leadership in Cincinnati to be more comfortable? And do you expect pushback, or was it a Madison thing? Nah. <laughs> Whoever asked that question, I'm already getting uh, pushback. Uh, uh, you know, when we look at our child poverty rates in Cincinnati, I've never worked in a conservative market. So uh, I have a bunch of million-dollar dumb. Matter of fact, we're having an event next week. Uh, it's called a Million-Dollar Roundtable. And we have both Democrats and Republicans, and like I said, everything in between. And I think one of the reasons they hired me is because of some of the positions that I took. I also got to be wise enough to know that I got to, uh, one of the things I learned here is my first couple of years, I did a lot of 
good stuff here, helping kids, helping families, and built up a, a strong reputation. And I'll tell you, I cried one day. Um, there was a grassroots community leader that called me, and I immediately, my first couple of days, Katie, I, I met with business leaders, but I also started going out to some of the most challenging neighborhoods in all three of those states. So this community activist called me. There was a, uh, a shooting, and there was a 13-year-old kid who was laying on the ground, and I pulled up, and um, and um, and I wanted to get out, and I turned around and I left. And that was very, very hard for me uh, because the advice I've been getting from people in Madison, particularly everybody, Michael, learn the community first. Don't go in there guns blazing. <laughs> learn that community. Make friends. Understand the issues before you start getting connected to controversial issues. And that's going to be a challenge for me. And so I got to figure out what that healthy balance is. There was a, uh, a shooting at Fifth Third Bank. Um, Y'all probably heard about it here. A gunman walked into one of our banks and killed three people. Uh, immediately after that, um, I pulled together the city uh, and the executives from Fifth Third. I think 2,000 people showed up. And even then, I, I was getting some pushback, and even internally from my team, saying, well, shouldn't United Way be doing this? And I said, we're a convener. We're the United Way. We unite and bring people together. Why would we not do this? And uh, But, we, I mean, we did it. And so I got to figure out how I lead there, but I won't be afraid. I just won't. And even if that means I make some wrong decisions, and I made some wrong decisions here, um, but I also made a lot of right decisions. And I'm going to try to listen. I'm going to try to, Chief Ray taught me this quote. One day he said, seek understanding instead of being understood. So I've already, in my first 90 days, I've had 410 appointments as of Friday. And so I'm seeking understanding and trying to understand that community. I think I got a good grasp so far on the intel I've picked up from people all in all 10 of those counties. And I'm going to try to represent them, just like I tried to represent some of the most challenged in this community and try my best to do good. And I think we could have done, we could have done a lot more at Boys and Girls. And it was hard for me. I never cried so much in my life the day that I left the city. Can you talk about your decision to leave? What, what, what went into that? Yeah, it, it was hard. Um, I had no plans on leaving. I was sharing with Katie earlier. You know, I had got a couple of threats at my house. And uh, I, just four days before I accepted the job, had put a security system. I had purchased from Best Buy the security system to put cameras around my house. And um, I didn't know you had the, I didn't know you, that was the reason for it. Yeah, that was the reason. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I've been threatening, like some guy threatened to shoot me on Facebook. I mean, I've got my fair share of, uh, of threats here. And uh, so something had happened. I just put a security system in my house. And I, and I started engaging this search firm. And uh, on a Wednesday, a Wednesday, um, and I struggled because I, lo I love this city. And uh, I've never stayed in place this long in my, in my career. And they was like, this is one of the most prominent United Ways in the country. 
Uh, here's some of them. They need somebody to help fight poverty. And by, uh, so I was actually meeting with Mary Burke at the time. I got the phone call and, uh, and I was late for a Skype interview. Uh, I had to meet with Mary Burke. She doesn't know this. Um, and then they said, well, we're six months into this process. Would you mind coming to Cincinnati? And uh, this was on a Thursday, and they wanted me there uh, 7.30 on a Saturday. So they sent me these bios, and then I had another meeting with Mary Burke. And Mary Burke is our top donor at Boys and Girls Club, and I didn't want to blow off my meeting with her. So we ended up meeting, and I drove straight from here to Cincinnati, got there like 2 o'clock in the morning, uh, had a 7.30 interview that was supposed to have been 90 minutes, and it turned into a five-hour interview. And it was some of the top CEOs in that region, like representatives from P&G, Fifth Third Bank. Uh, I mean, it was an intimidating group of people. And, uh, and they offered me a job on the spot. And I said, well, something's wrong. Um, uh, <laughs> they had only had uh, 10 CEOs in 100, I, know, I think nine, in, 100 in their 105-year history, so a lot of 10-year. Well, I said, something got to be wrong. So I said, well, send me all your financials. Send me this, send me that. And then my board did everything they could to try to keep me here. And, uh, and I struggled with it. So I took my family down there. I took my kids, and we interviewed the board. And uh, they made sure it was the right decision. And then ultimately, it came down to um, it's not too many opportunities that an African-American male get to run an organization that's worth over $100 million. It is unheard of. Uh, Typically, when nonprofits get three to four million and higher, you don't see people that look like me running anything in those organizations. And somebody reminded me of that when I was going through it. So that was this one. And then two, um, I felt like given their reputation and given my life's mission, uh, those things aligned. Um, and then I would say three. I actually did not accept it right away because when the board came back, I was like, what would it take for us to keep you here? And there was a donor here, and I won't say his name. I said that my, I had a going-away party who pretty much was like, I'll help. I'll pay off your mortgage if you stay here. It's like, wow. And, um, and when it came down to it, I was like, you know what? My heart felt compelled to go, and I was, a, I was afraid, I'll be honest with you. Uh, here, I had gained so many great friends, um, great relationships, and it was, it was hard. Even to the point last month, I came back uh, and spent some time with uh, Tim Metcalf, who owns, y'all know Tim? Tim owns a grocery store here, and uh, Chris Fortune, who owns Sarah Cycling, and Paul Thompson was the CEO of Fiskars. Uh, I missed this place so much. I came back and said, I just need to just, I've been working seven days a week. I just need to get back to it. So we spent three days in Door County, and uh, it just felt great to be able to connect with some of those old friends. But I'm meeting new friends there, and it's helping. The problem is people from Cincinnati 
keep coming to my house. So I've had 25 people since I've left come spend weekends up there. So it's hard to it's hard to it's hard to let go. People from Cincinnati or people from Madison? From Madison. <laughs> I mean people from Madison uh have come from Sabrina uh from uh, Sabrina Madison to uh Dennis McClain. Uh I know Peter Gray, his wife, is now talking about coming. <laughs> Yeah, so it's it's and I felt that way when I first got here. Like I was very lonely my first three four months here. I didn't know one person when I moved into the city. And I remember the day I uh, I drove into the city. I was on the belt line, and I started crying. And I just prayed. I said, I just hope uh, I can come here and do meaningful work and uh, and do good things. And uh, I was just thankful for my time here. So one thing that you talked about when we chatted earlier, too, um, you mentioned how you feel like it's important to grow and it's important not to be stagnant in the same position for 10 years or 9 or 10 years. So that seemed also to be behind some of your motivation to to leave, to get... One thing I learned about, uh, whether you agree with Mayor Daley's politics or not in Chicago... Uh, um, one of the things I learned from uh, Mayor Daley is that his commissioners never really stayed in a position for like three or four years. And sometimes I think uh, whether you agree with Brandy Grayson or not, and me and Brandy did not agree a lot. I mean, Brandy was somebody that was quoted in newspapers saying, called, she called me the uh, torchbearer of white supremacy. God, it was like... <laughs> That did not feel good, but Brandy actually came to Cincinnati and visited me, and and it's somebody that I respect. So she always talks about the uh, the uh, the nonprofit uh, nonprofit uh, industrial complex, and uh, and I used to hate when she used to say that word. She said, "I would never do anything with you because you're part of the nonprofit industrial complex." I'm like, God. So uh, so then, as I started hearing her talk, and it's all about seeking understanding, sometimes people who are in these leadership roles, they stay too long, they get comfortable, and then it, it becomes about their retirement and their pension, and sometimes not about the work. And you see some, sometimes people get to the tail ends of their career or may have other motives, and sometimes the work get lost. And I had to challenge myself as much as I loved it here, was it time for me to grow and to do something uh, different? And I questioned, I even started thinking two or three years ago, what was that something here? I had got approached about running United Way here uh, when there was a search, but it didn't feel right to me. And I actually think, thought Renee, Renee deserved it because she had been in that role so long. And, but I could not think of another opportunity that, that I would have been passionate about here. So I didn't see that North Star for me anywhere in this area. So when that opportunity came up, it was a blessing. And I would say this. I was here nine years. I got 12 job offers. And some were with local corporations. One was with an oral health care organization that asked me to be their, um, their um, uh, vice president. It was a $400,000 a year job. 
And I was like, wow, that's a lot of money. And uh, But as much as I like brushing my teeth, I don't know if I can get up every single day talking about oral health care. And, uh, and I sure would not have been passionate about that. And uh, United, at United Way, uh, I actually enjoyed getting up every single day and going to work. I enjoyed that at Boys and Girls Club. The difference that I have in my role now is that at Boys and Girls Club, I was a direct care provider. Now, I have to think about system change and the systemic issues and how we fund it and how we convene and how we collaborate and how we get results. And, uh, and that's something I got to get used to because at Boys and Girls Club, even though I thought about it and we tried to do it, it is now my responsibility to do that and to work with the mayor of our city. Like I meet with the mayor of Cincinnati uh, twice a month. And we just got back from Toronto, Canada, looking at some things there. And um, it's going to be an adjustment for me. Sorry for the long response. Oh, no, that's great. Um, so you've talked a lot about all of the things that you're doing to address issues of racial equity, among many other things. Um, what advice do you have for our audience, um, largely white audience, um, which is generally... In, the community of Madison as a whole, largely white. What what advice would you have for people who want to get involved, who want to help make some of these changes that you're that you have shown so much leadership on? So I would say a couple of things, and I'm learning this in my new role, um, focusing on issues around public policy. Uh, we can't change some of these systemic issues unless we uh, have strong uh, individuals who can be connected to public policy issues. So, you know, at United Way, we have a team of about 60 people from the community, both Republicans and Democrats, that work with us on uh, policy-related changes. And that's how we pass that $15 million a year for over the next five-year levy to make sure that uh, kids have access to early childhood education. Uh, second, I would say uh, the, the words that Chief Ray gave me again, seek understanding instead of being understood. Even as an African-American leader, I am now privileged. I, even though I lived in the projects 23 years of my life, I'm now 42. I've been out of the projects for 20-something years, and I'm now an upper-middle-class executive, and I am now a person of privilege. So I try to stay grounded by connecting and staying connected to those who are challenged by these issues and having them to continue to teach us and to empower them and to support them. And don't be afraid to insert yourself in conversations, to engage in communities that need individuals uh, like you. There's a ton of nonprofits in this region. Join their boards. Join their committees. Challenge them. Help fundraise for them. And I think that's what's needed, public policy, volunteerism, and being connected to those communities that need it the most. The other thing I shared with Katie earlier, and I hope this is something this city um, might be, I hope they're doing, uh, but I love seeing this in Cincinnati. Uh, every year the chamber uh, sponsor a, chip, a trip with nonprofit and business leaders that go to different cities to look at best practices. So I got an opportunity 
to spend three days with the owner of the Cincinnati Reds, the the president and CEO of uh, Cincinnati Bell, and all these big companies, and also nonprofit leaders. And we looked at some of the stuff that they're doing in t- uh, Toronto around diversity, inclusion, equity, their their transportation system, the things that they're doing in their financial district. I wish we would have did something like that here in Madison. If they're doing it, I know nonprofits weren't involved. And so I think that's something we should consider. And then finally, uh, a lot of nonprofits here struggle. Uh, In Cincinnati, one of the things that I like there, there's a group called One Source. And One Source is there to help, particularly the smaller nonprofits, on how to build up infrastructure and how to build strategic plans. And I think we need something like that. And on top of that, um, there's this program called BOLD uh, that United Way helped fund and support. It's pretty much like a, uh, a, a match.com. So if you are a, uh, a volunteer that say, I want to volunteer on the east side of Madison and an after-school program, and I want to join a finance committee, that system will match you up with the, let's say, the Eastside Community Center will put you in touch with that executive director and then try to schedule a time for the two of you all to meet. And if you don't have any board experience, then you go through this bold leadership program to train you on how to be an effective board member. And so I think uh, those are some things that I think this city should con- uh, consider. And then plus the tax levy that I talked about. And if we're going to change these issues, you can't count on United Way dollars and uh, local donors doing it by themselves. It has to be the citizens of this city, uh, your local government, and your nonprofit organizations working on one plan with multiple strategies to reduce the most challenging issues in our region. That would be my advice. Great advice. Um, I want to do one more question from the audience, and then I think we're out of time. Um, given the conservatism of the broader Cincinnati area environment, what do you think were the reasons you were hired there? Uh, so a couple of things I'm starting to find out. <laughs> so United Ways all across the country is having some, some challenges, uh, including our United Way. Uh, so one... Uh, a lot of companies are using these evergreen platforms, and there's a group called Benevity that is going into markets like this and saying, okay, uh, as the CEO or your board, you should allow your company to choose who they give to and not necessarily go through United Way. So if you're the CEO of American Family Insurance, instead of running the United Way campaign, they will come in with this platform and then your employees can go online and give to any charity in the world. And uh, that technology is hurting us a little bit. Secondly, in our market, we've had a couple of issues with donor designation. So some, even though we raised $60 million a year, all that money does not stay in our community. Third, we're seeing that uh, a lot of um, privately owned companies are being bought out. Uh, by companies outside of the United States who may not be local. So the CEOs that that started those companies and families, they were local, 
And now you've got uh, venture capitalists coming in and buying up these companies that don't necessarily have a relationship um, in the community and it's impacting uh, the United Way campaign. So I think the reason uh, they hired me is, I think, a couple of reasons. One, uh, I, I think I'm a good fundraiser. You all have trained me well in this community. I talked about doing uh, the search process, how we diversified our funding um, at the Boys and Girls Club. So in any good business portfolio, if you're going to sustain your operation, you have to have a diversity of funding. So I think they hired me because of my training around uh, fund development. Two, I think they wanted somebody that had a personal connection to uh, poverty. And because I grew up in poverty, uplifted myself out of poverty with 20 years of experience, I think that that helped. And then I think three, when they did their background check on me, uh, I pretty much said, here's a list of all my board members. Uh, you call any city I've worked in, I don't care who you talk to, I'm not going to even give you a reference list. Uh, or if you want, call anybody. I felt confident enough, even though I made some people happy and some people angry, I've always, in every place I live, made a difference and move the needle on some issue. And I think they need that somebody that can help uh, raise the profile of their campaign, uh, include people in the process, and ultimately help move children and families out of poverty. That's my number one responsibility as the new president and CEO of United Way of Greater Cincinnati. Well, I think that's a, a great way to wrap up. Uh, thank you so much, Michael. Wonderful to chat with you. Thank you for listening to Live from Cap Times Idea Fest. You can subscribe to this show on iTunes or anywhere else you find podcasts. If you like it, please give us a rating or a review. We'd appreciate it. We're also releasing audio from the fest on some of our other podcasts here at the Cap Times. Shows like The Corner Table, The Madsplainers, and Cap Times Talks. Be sure to give those a listen. I'm Eric Lawrenson, and thanks again for tuning in. <laughs>